Well, what a privilege we have, and I've already enjoyed some some wonderful time this weekend catching up on on all that God's doing in in our family of churches, in particular in one particular church. You know, about three years ago, uh, Grace Family Church uh, was planted in uh, an area west of Kingston, Jamaica, and uh, about two and a half years ago, I guess it was somewhere after the, the plant had actually taken place, we got to partner with this church and have Joel Bain with us uh, to share with us the vision of what God was doing there uh, in Jamaica and how we could be a part of that. And the church got started. I got a chance to go down and, and be part of their opening services there and their dedication of beginning this work in that area of Jamaica. And then the Lord was blessing some great things were happening there in the church and God was adding folks to the church. Community was being built. This is a, this is a church that has a value, just like our value in sovereign grace for loving God's word and helping people to love God's word. And I, and you, I, I can't say that with enough eagerness in our day because there's so many ideas floating around out there and they're all being presented with great passion. But we, we want churches that take the authority and the origination of what we believe and transfer it back to God himself and into his word that he's revealed and for that to be proclaimed and taught effectively. And that's what this church was planted to be. Uh, three families about five years ago just sensed the call of God and uprooted their lives, sold their belongings, moved to the States, uh, became part of Sovereign Grace, went through the pastor's college there, went turned through internships, really put their lives. And these, if you got to meet these families, these are folks with some game. I mean, these guys have, have, they've got gifts, they've got talents. They could be doing something else and doing it very effectively uh, in Jamaica. But, God interrupted their lives and all of them answered that call and have planted a church there in Jamaica. And as, as this church was taking off, uh, like many of us experience, COVID hit, right? And so, uh, what a dream, right? To plant a church and then have a worldwide pandemic in the first year. I mean, I don't think they got to the end of the first year and it's like, Hey, welcome to a pandemic. And you, know, you probably haven't followed the news, but Jamaica, uh, they were pretty responsive to the situation of, of COVID. A lot of shutdowns, uh, lockdowns, a lot of restrictions, much more so than what we faced here that has hindered their ability through those two years to gather as a church, to, to be a church as God has called them to be. So their, their momentum that God was building seemingly was very disrupted. And so what we're excited about this morning is, is to join with Joel and join with what God is doing there as, as the church. And what's amazing is the church continued in their relationships with one another, in their community building with each other, even with new folks that were, were being added to build effectively. And, and one of the things I love about just, I, I just take notes in my own heart as I spend time with Joel is he's like a play button waiting to happen about just the people that he's getting to care for, right? I, I, I know some of these folks just from visiting, but to listen to people who have come into a church setting uh, and experience the presence and the nearness of God in ways that they have not experienced ever before, being cared for, 
folks who are going through wanting to get married, learning how to get married, folks who have gone through divorces and are now single and raising children have found a home where they can be cared for and loved and brought into the richness of God's word. And one moment after another, I get to hear one story after another of what God is doing there in that community. So, so here's why Joel is here today. He's here to preach the word of God to us, and, and you're going to be blessed and see what these folks in Jamaica get a chance to receive uh, every week as they gather. Uh, he's here to update us on the mission of what God is doing in, in uh, the church there in Jamaica. Uh, he is here at our invitation because we want to lavish God's grace. Oops. Lavish God's grace on him and on the church there. So uh, when you plan a church, you're hoping at about year three, you're, you're finally getting to this place where things are stabilizing and the church is self-sustaining. Well, global pandemics tend to mess that up a little bit. <clears throat> so they're not at year three with that happening. And, and they need help. And we are glad to be able to help them. And so at the end of the service, I'm going to come back up at the end of the service. And we're going to take up an offering for Joel and for the church there. And we're going to ask you to, to consider, and you can be doing this while the Lord is, is dealing with us in his word this morning, how you can give to the work that God is doing there in Jamaica. It could be a one-time gift this morning that you'd like to give. It could be a monthly gift. Maybe you can't afford to do something very much on a one-time basis, but you could do something over the next year monthly to support them. But you'll have an opportunity to respond that way and to partner with them uh, in prayer as well. This, this is a worthy work. These are, these are three gifted men who are, are bringing something that we want to see it take off and flourish. We want to see many, many lives receiving the benefit of what God has already been doing there in a core group that God's established and building from. So uh, what a blessing it's been to, to get to hang out with this man this weekend, and, and you are about to be blessed. So please welcome Joel Bain to the pulpit this morning. Uh, just just because he has a cool accent doesn't mean he's saying anything better than what is normally said in the pulpit. Can I just clarify that? Okay. Thank you, Keith. So I, I do realize from my time in the States I, that I have this distinct advantage of accent. What's weird is that at home, nobody thinks my voice is cool. It's just like, you know, like oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Good morning, Lakeview. I, it's hard to express my joy in being here. Uh, it's good to be with you all again. Uh, some of you don't know me, and that tells you how long this pandemic has been, because you know, apart from the pandemic, I tried to get here at least once a year. We love you folks. You guys are in our hearts, you're in our prayers. I'd like to greet those online also. Uh, we've all had to adjust to this life of being online um, when it was not necessarily in our plans but it's a blessing to be able to receive that way also and i'm glad you're able to tune in and so that i can serve you this morning i want to thank keith and the elders for the invitation to come uh, and to be with you uh, up to a few months ago i was locked out of the states uh, my visa had expired and the u.s embassy was just kind of going very slowly with renewals i had a date for next year march for a visa appointment and then we were praying about it and one day i just decided to check the site and all of a sudden dates had opened up the next week so just kind of jumped in on that so i'm glad i can be here and glad i can be with the guys for the region 
Yeah, and be with the, the regional meeting um, this coming week. Uh, this morning, I, I went to bed really early, which is weird, uh, but it was a, a busy day yesterday. And so I was up really early and decided, let me just listen through Philippians um, and, and follow in my Bible. And Philippians 1, 5 just speaks about your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And as I heard that and read that, I thought of all of you. Um, I'm going to correct Keith, not from the scriptures, but just on factual errors. Uh, I actually came here in the lead up to our planting Grace Family Church for the first time. So you all were a part of that work before our first service began. And we are grateful. I want to greet you on behalf of our church and our elders, uh, my fellow elders, Sean and Sheldon. I'm grateful for your partnership with us directly, but also our partnership in Sovereign Grace Churches, which is what has brought us together and in the Southeast region. So, so the church in Jamaica and the church in Bahamas are part of that Southeast region, even though we are offshore, but we are glad for that partnership and we thrive because of it. We thrive because of your prayers and your support. My wife sends her greetings. She was here the last time uh, I came. Uh, she couldn't come this time, but she really wanted to come. So I want to update you on what's going on with Grace Family Church. You heard some things from Keith. Um, I think, uh, yeah, we're going to have some photos from our third anniversary. So I'll probably just build around that. Oh, okay. So that's my family. You have not met my kids yet, but those are my children, Maya, Dominic, and Jacob Khalil, um, and my wife, Samora. Uh, we, as you heard, we've been going for just over three years now. Uh, it really continues to just be a joyful journey, building. It's not been like we, what we thought it would be. I think God has really focused us on building a church with a culture that's forged by the gospel. And that takes time. You know, we started from three families uh, and a planting team of about 11. We've now grown to 45 members and our regular Sunday attendance of about 80 now. Uh, we have the joy of serving many young families. So this was our third anniversary service and picnic. We can just combine the two. We, uh, we meet at a golf club uh, outside uh, of Kingston. Uh, it's a wonderful spot. Uh, it really has been a provision for us to be there. Um, so on this particular morning, we got a tent and they have a wonderful lawn that, that looks out on the, on the city of Kingston. And we were out there uh, set up, we did our service, and then we rolled right into just a time of, of food and fun together. Um, as you'll see in the pictures, we have lots of young kids. It's, it, it, it's chaotic. It actually feels like a family picnic most Sundays because kids are, you know, with COVID spacing and seats, kids are running between these wonderful lanes that they get now and, and screaming, and I'm just working that into the sermon. So, you know, it, 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 what's been wonderful is to welcome young families who often feel uh, very reluctant to go to church with young children because when they scream in a church and other people give them dirty looks, that's no fun. Uh, but we, as I say, we just work it in. We have a lot of fun with that. Uh, as Keith pointed out, our church has spent a lot more time under pandemic conditions than not. So it's, it's, it's weird to be merging from that now. Weird but wonderful. We, what, what, one of the ways COVID really has restricted us is our ability to reach out to the immediate community that we're in. Uh, my wife and I moved into that community like two and a half months before COVID hit. And we, we were basically locked in our houses <laughs> for two years. Um, nothing was happening, no, no activities, uh, no, no ability to do outreach. Uh, so that has, 
you know, that has been hard to face. Uh, we trust it's in the Lord, but it has put us in a place where we've been able to work very hard on building a community that's ready to welcome people. And now we're starting to see that happen with people coming out to church. Uh, the restrictions for us looked like lockdowns. We had days where we couldn't leave our homes. Uh, work from home orders for anybody who could. Um, no movement days. So at one point, Sunday was a no movement day. So you know, you're doing things during the week and everybody had to stay home on Sundays. And they gradually started to open that up. Um, we just ended our mask mandates, like last week. Um, so, yeah, it's been a long time. One of the benefits of being a small church, though, is that we have been able to meet even when the, the, the gathering limit for churches was 50. We've been able to gather and be together. And it really became a precious thing for us. We understood the privilege of gathering as believers much, much more. We've been building our church, as Keith said, on gospel preaching and trying to build gospel culture among us, trying to learn to love each other as Christ has loved us, to forgive each other, to make room for one another, to bear with one another. We've been serving, as I said, a lot of young families, a lot of people who have returned to Jamaica after time overseas, uh, a number of people who are probably washing out of their churches because people are finding them to be too much trouble. Uh, but when you don't have anybody, you welcome everybody. Um, so that's been wonderful to do. I just want to express gratitude for you and for your partnership with us in prayer and in giving. Uh, it really has sustained us for a long time. The pandemic had a, a massive impact on our finances, but we had reserves partially because of your giving. Uh, and I, I want to thank you this morning for the opportunity to serve you in preaching. So I just want to pray and then let's get into God's word. Father, you are gathering a family from every tribe and every nation and every language and every tongue. And I thank you that we get to experience some of that uh, in our local churches, but also through our partnerships. Thank you for sovereign grace and the work you are doing in churches in the U.S. and around the world. And the fact that we are getting to build relationships to get to know one another on this side of your return. We glory in that. We rejoice in that. I, I rejoice that I'm looking out on family now because of the work of Jesus. And I pray that uh, you'd empower me by your spirit to preach your word for your people so that they would be blessed and edified. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you please turn in your Bibles or navigate on your devices to Philippians chapter 2. As we approach the end of 2021, there were two particular questions on my mind as I thought about Grace Family Church and the journey that we've been on. The first was, what sort of community are we becoming? And the second was, what biblical teaching should be shaping that? For a three-year-old church, those are very important questions. Believe it or not, I mean, you saw the pictures, but our life together doesn't always feel like a picnic in paradise. And you can't build a church on good vibes. It's been a fascinating and a frightening thing for me to recognize that I'm involved in shaping the culture of a community that Jesus has purchased with his own blood. But the sense of responsibility I feel and the awareness of culture I carry should not be particular to church plants. All of us as God's people committed to our local church should be thinking about what we are becoming together and how the scriptures should be shaping that. All of us, not just leaders, whether we're conscious of it or not, 
We all carry the responsibility to play our part in shaping the culture of our church. So where do we receive instructions about this? Philippians 2 is one important passage that should be shaping our approach to Christian community. We're going to be focused on verses 1 through 11. Last week, as you celebrated Easter Sunday, Keith taught about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the dawn of a new day. Philippians 2, 1 to 11 is a wonderful passage to be looking at in the shadow of Easter. It connects Jesus' journey, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection to Christian community. Here, the Apostle Paul serves up potent Christology and practical instructions as he puts Jesus on display for us to adore and imitate. So please lean in as I read from Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I am not a car guy at all. Um, but I was with one of my friends in Orlando. I flew to Orlando, then flew on to here. And perhaps one third of our conversation was him just telling me about cars, telling me about what, you know, Tesla's latest offerings. Now, one of my sons is into Teslas. I don't know how that's going to happen, but, you know. You know, but just, just telling me about, oh, oh, the SUV and the semi-truck and, and, and zero to 60 and all, all of these ridiculous stats. Since I'm not a car guy, you know, it's one of these things, you know, you want to be helpful, but if somebody's car is having a problem, you know, the, the best I can do is look in the engine and confirm that it is an engine because <laughs> I really couldn't tell you what's going on at all. But worse and much more significant, I'm not attentive to maintaining my car. So I'll put gas in it and I'll try to keep the tires inflated, but that's about as far as it goes. So I'm deeply, I'm deeply appreciative of inventions like the maintenance-free battery, which I'm actually told is not maintenance-free, but that hasn't stopped me from living like it is. So I think recently we had to change our battery because it was maintenance-free and I wasn't maintaining it and it died earlier than it should have. But you see, there are things that can, that can continue to run well without a conscious effort on our part to keep them in good order. A church is not one of them. In our text, Paul is calling attention to one aspect of the work the Philippian church must put in if they are to maintain the unity 
They've been given in Christ. If these believers are to continue to be united, they must embrace the collective pursuit of humility. And Paul presents Jesus as the ultimate exemplar of the humility these believers are commanded to imitate. What's true for that church, then, is true for you also, Lakeview. Unity as a church depends upon conscious and, and collective pursuit of Christ-like humility. Your unity as a church depends on that. The unity at the heart of what Jesus is doing among you is not maintenance-free. Without your attention, without your obedience in pursuing the humility that Jesus demonstrated for you, you'll be weakened by the external and internal challenges that are constantly coming at you. So, for you here at Lakeview, and for us at Grace Family Church, we must keep our eyes on the one who saved us and brought us together and worship and imitate him. Your unity as a church depends upon conscious and collective pursuit of Christ-like humility. So I want to help you to do two things as we look at this passage this morning, as I just work my way through it. I want you to hear Paul's impassioned plea for unity in verses 1 through 4. And then I want you to see Christ's spectacular example of humility and its outcome in verses 5 through 11. So let's listen first to hear Paul's impassioned plea for unity. So we're going to look at these first four verses, but I don't want to start at the very beginning. Instead, I'm going to focus on what Paul is calling these believers to. Then we'll return to the start to consider how he calls them to this. So look with me then at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now stick a pin where Paul says, complete my joy. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. He's... He's, ex he's expressing what he's calling them to in four phrases. Being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. His list begins and ends with the idea of having the same mind. Having one mind or purpose. So unity of thought is what he's focused on. But in the two other phrases he adds two more dimensions. Having the same love and being of one accord or joined in soul. So, the unity then that Paul is calling for is not just being on the same page in terms of how we think or sharing a common goal. It's this full orb unity of mind and heart and soul. It's being bound together not just by common principles, but mutual love and commitment to Jesus and others. So how do you hear this call to unity? How does it hit you? There are a number of ways it can hit us. You can hear in it the good news that the gospel continually invites us out of isolation and into family. Living through the pandemic has amplified our experience of isolation, hasn't it? I hope that you are sustained as you walk through it by your personal communion with Jesus. But I think that we all realize that we suffer when we do not have connection with other people. The basis of that connection and what, and what makes it sustainable is not that we click. You know, you have those relationships in church. You meet somebody and the first time you're with them, you're like, wow, we have so much in common. And then you're exploring this wonderful space of friendship because you just, you just click that way. But... That's not what makes our unity sustainable, but it's that we are in Christ. 
That's actually what we're called to invite others who are not yet believers into. If you're here today and you do not yet know Jesus, the way that I'm talking about community might hit you as quite strange. One of the blessings of being in a relationship with Jesus is that it brings you into God's family. God never made us to live in isolation. That was never his intention for us. Alienation from God and from others is a consequence of sin entering the world. So one of the things that Jesus is doing as he redeems the whole creation is he connects us to himself first and then in him to each other. Despite all of the differences that tend to divide us. So if you are here and you hunger for community and for connection, Jesus offers himself to you today. So please don't leave without talking to someone. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to any of the ushers. Because I know they'd love to help you to learn how you can begin to follow Jesus today. As we consider Paul's plea, I'm aware that this kind of call to unity can sound ominous in some ways. Having the same mind can be mistaken for the kind of group think where questions are seen as a threat. And you wonder if you're allowed to disagree with anything. Particularly if you're years younger than I am, and I'm older than I look. There's a, a generational bent that you need to be aware of. You may find that you, uh, you, you instinctively distrust institutions. And you may harbor the fear that conforming to a pattern of thought will lead to your losing yourself. As a result, you may be reluctant to throw yourself into relationships in the body of Christ, to, to dive into the pool, as it were. And you kind of just hang out around the edge of the pool with your feet in there, dangling. You know, you're feeling the water. It's kind of nice being here, but you're not getting into the center of all of this. If those kind of thoughts are in the back of your mind as you try to follow Jesus, I think what we see of him in the Gospels can help you. Now, Jesus most definitely does not invite us into democracy. He teaches with authority and calls us to a discipleship which is demanding. It demands unwavering allegiance to him. Yet he welcomes our questions. We see this with his disciples. I mean, these guys are often so confused and they just, they don't get it. They don't understand what he's saying and they certainly don't understand what he's doing. But he welcomes their questions and answers them patiently. And, and he's willing to journey patiently with us. And we can know that he's not the kind of shepherd who exploits his sheep because he lays his life down for his sheep. So we're called then to unity. But what is it that sets the agenda for that unity? What's it built on and what's it meant to express? Look back into chapter 1 in Philippians. Look at verse 27. That's actually where Paul begins to give, give, give the set of instructions that we're examining. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that instruction now becomes this distinct backbeat all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. And as you can see here, unity of thought is linked to working side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Peter O'Brien rightly observes that Paul is calling these believers to be gospel-oriented as they relate to and care for one another. 
If we compare to what Jesus teaches in Mark 10, 43 and 44, he's going to tell us what that looks like. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So the unity Jesus calls us into, the unity Paul is calling for, doesn't come through this kind of forced uniformity, but through embracing a mutual commitment to humility and an orientation towards one another. Look now at verses 3 and 4 in Philippians chapter 2. Commenting on these verses, Moises Silva points out, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. Rejecting self-centeredness and cultivating a servant heart is precisely what Paul is concerned about in verses 3 and 4. He gives two negative commands matched by two positive commands, calling the Philippian church away from selfish ambition and conceit and a focus on themselves and towards humility in their thinking and a focus on others. Selfish ambition and conceit and a focus on oneself. The problem we face immediately as we reckon with what Paul calls us to reject is that sin makes us fundamentally self-centered. We see this in our infant children clearly because they haven't yet learned how to clothe and to conceal their selfish desires. That's why when you have a second child, particularly if your first is still quite young, the addition of an other, no matter how welcoming your first child is, inevitably brings conflict. So suddenly, in addition to being protector and provider and playmate, you have a new role that comes with a new uniform. You become a referee. <laughs> I mean, that would frustrate me so much. I mean, it still does. You know, I, I think one of the reasons I'm tempted to allow my sons to have a lot of tablet time is because they're at peace when they have a lot of tablet time. <laughs> All of a sudden, you say, all right, boys, get off the tablets, do something else, and the something else becomes fighting. You're like, seriously? <sighs> but you see, the truth is children have no monopoly on selfishness. We don't actually mature out of it. At Grace Family Church, we completed preaching through the Gospel of Mark late last year. So just early December, we finished up uh, that Gospel. One of the things that was obviously on display in the portrait of Jesus' inner circle was selfishness. In fact, the negative commands here in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 could almost be a commentary on the rivalry uh, and self-interest among Jesus' disciples. Arguing about who's the greatest, trying to secure places of honor for themselves. Selfish ambition, conceit, and a focus on oneself. Particularly because it presents us with an audience to impress. Social media tempts us in, in this regard, doesn't it? If you're an active social media user, perhaps later, take some time and scroll back through your posts for the last week. No, I can't do that. I just actually joined Instagram like four days ago. It's, I'll tell you about that soon. But yeah, if you scroll back through your posts for the last week and your stories, you know, think about some questions. Why did you make particular posts that you made? How often did you do it for likes? You know, to kind of show that you're smart or funny or relevant or resourceful or attractive. How often were you motivated by looking out for the interests of others? How often were you seeking to honor someone else versus seeking to be honored yourself? So as I mentioned, I'm just venturing into social media again. 
Um, I, so, so I signed up for Instagram. I actually lost a bet with my wife, so that's part of the reason why I did that, because I've been trying to get her to rest. And, you know, we moved a few weeks ago, and she's been going at it, trying to get everybody settled. So I, I, I was like, okay, if you will sit and watch a series on Disney, you know, then I'll finally sign up for Instagram. That was the, the bargain, and so she did, so I did. But, you know, years ago, I was a very early adopter of Facebook. But I saw over time how tempted I would be to use my words just to build my own renown, to impress others, to best people in arguments. So, you know, I, I realized that there's this ugliness coming out of me. So I backed way, way off. I still have an account, but I kind of look once a month or so. But now I'm starting to post again, and I'm very aware of the way it can scratch that itch. You know, that itch to be noticed, to be admired. But you see, avoiding social media does not make you less self-centered. Paul gives us these negative commands because we need to hear them and to heed them. Until we are delivered from the presence of sin, we will need these reminders. But you see, it's one thing to swallow your pride. It's another to begin to pursue humility in the ways that we're called to hear. So what could that look like for you? So in the first place, we need to acknowledge the need to consciously pursue humility. It, it, it doesn't just happen. So it, it means putting thought and effort and planning and strategy into caring for the interests of others. It means taking a posture towards our brothers and sisters where we are attentive to them and looking out for them. One simple starting point is in our conversations. If we're not thoughtful, most conversations that we have can be really about us. The other person kind of becomes the sounding board for me to talk about myself. You know? So you end up talking about what you like and what you dislike, your opinions, and on and on. And even if you're not so inclined to talk about yourself, that doesn't make you inclined towards compassionate and attentive listening. What if we instead counted others more significant than ourselves by listening and asking questions that are aimed at getting to know and to understand others? What if we became the sort of people who, after speaking with us, people felt like they had been heard and understood, even for a short conversation? In these verses then, Paul is calling us to the priority of unity, maintained through a conscious pursuit of humility. Now I want you to notice how Paul calls us to this. Look back at verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. What Paul begins with then is a passionate, personal plea. Moises Silva explains, verse 1 is not intended to function as a set of four rational theological arguments, but rather impassioned pleading. What he lists here are felt benefits of being united with Jesus and with God's people. Encouragement, comfort, participation, meaning fellowship, affection, and sympathy. And that if is before each of those in the original text. He's appealing to them to pursue unity, persuaded by the blessings that they have received in Christ, even if they have to reach back a bit to remember them. You see, when Paul wrote this letter, things had gotten tougher for these believers. 
It's possible that they were not aware of or were not at the time experiencing these blessings to the same extent that they once were. His language, if any, also embraces the fact that as individual Christians, we may experience these blessings to varying degrees. So you might read one person who just is able to gush about how encouraged and loved they felt when they came to faith in Jesus. And even how encouraged and loved they feel now. Another might acknowledge some experience of such blessings, but also that they had some very painful experiences in church. Some of the people we are shepherding now had some very painful experiences in church. And it's been a joy to love them, to care for them, but also to ask their forgiveness when we sin against them. And recognize that we're not going to be perfect. We're a flawed church also. In saying, if any, Paul is appealing to all of us who have experienced the blessings of salvation to any extent. And he's saying, let that motivate you to pursue unity of mind, heart, and soul. So, do you find yourself more marked by negative experiences you've had as a Christian or in church than you are the blessings you've received in Christ? Do you find yourself more fearful of imagined betrayal than you are expectant of the blessing of acceptance and understanding that you've already experienced to some degree? Paul is calling us to focus our emotional memory on how God has been gracious to us in Christ and to let that fuel our obedience. His appeal is passionate and it's personal. Make my joy complete. Paul is not being selfish or making their obedience all about him. He's appealing to the personal relationship this church has with him. He planted this church, attending the spiritual birth of many of these brothers and sisters. They have been his close partners in the work of the gospel, contributing to his needs and praying for him and identifying with him in his imprisonment for the gospel. He's hoping to be released and is longing to visit them because of his deep love for them. It's out of that relationship that he's saying that his joy will be complete if they pursue unity. But think about that for a moment. Paul is in prison. If you were in prison, what would make your joy complete? Being released, wouldn't it? But for Paul, his concern, his focus is on the spiritual progress of these saints. Their sanctification, their obedience, their pursuit of unity. That's what's going to make his joy complete. Even if he remains in prison, if he hears that this church is doing well, his heart will be full. It's hard to know what to make of Paul sometimes, isn't it? But I must confess, as I studied this text, I realized that I understand his personal appeal in a new way now. Because I've grown in my attachment to the people that God has given me to pastor. I'm at the point where it doesn't matter how well I'm doing personally. It's, it's, the, the thing that means the most to me is not my, my own kind of wonderful communion with God. My joy is now attached to their progress in the faith. To our growth in unity. When they struggle to believe the gospel, when they reject the grace of Jesus, when relationships among us fracture and there isn't reconciliation, when people withdraw from fellowship, I carry those deficits in my heart. I carry them in my prayers. I'm coming to see that as a part of my calling. And I know the same is true for Keith and for the elders here at Lakeview concerning you. 
So this plea for unity, this scriptural appeal for our conscious and collective pursuit of humility is the cry of their hearts. We've heard Paul's impassioned plea for unity. But Paul isn't finished persuading and teaching yet. Moises Silva observes, if unity can come about only from an attitude of humility, then surely Paul must reinforce the critical importance of humility in the hearts of believers. And what better way to reinforce this thought than by reminding the Philippians of the attitude and conduct of him to whom they are united in faith. So it's going to serve us then to see Christ's spectacular example of humility and its outcome. So we're going to focus on verses 5 to 11. Verse 5 is a bit difficult to translate. The ESV, which we primarily rely on, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the ESV translators then are leaning into the idea that the humility we need to embrace is a gift of the gospel as we are empowered by Jesus. A number of other good translations go in a different direction. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible, for example, says, Adopt the same attitude of the, as that of Christ Jesus. Leaning into Jesus as the example of humility that we are to imitate. Now, normally when I come across this kind of disagreement, my approach is to read a bunch of commentators and see who I find most persuasive. But for, but for this book of Philippians, I only had access to a limited number. One of them, Moises Silva, whom you've heard from a few times already, offers a paraphrase with yet another emphasis. Adopt then this frame of mind in your community. Which, is in, which indeed is proper for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he is leaning in to the appropriateness of humility for people who are in union with Christ. Okay then, that's like three different directions we could go in. What do we do with those three different emphases? Here's the saving grace in all of this. All of those emphases are biblically faithful. So we don't need to figure out precisely which one Paul had in mind in order to respond to his exhortation. In fact, all of those reasons for the pursuit of humility are in or immediately around this text. Right after this passage, in well-known verses in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul will call for obedience, grounded in knowing that we are empowered by God. He's the one who works within us to both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. We already looked at Philippians 1.27, which calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, echoing Silva's idea of the appropriateness of the pursuit of humility. And Silva himself points out that the notion of Jesus as an, as an ethical example is implicit in Philippians 2.5 by the very nature of the subject matter. So we don't need then to trip over differing ideas about this verse. In this case, we can have it all. We can pursue humility knowing that it is a gift of God's grace and that it is appropriate for us as followers of Christ to think like he did and that he is our example as we seek to do so. And in this case, and this is critical, we need it all. We need to hear that the pursuit of humility comes through God's power given to us in Christ because how else could we imitate Jesus? If we are to try to take this command and to run with it on our own steam, it would defeat and discourage us. We'd be overwhelmed by our remaining pride and self-centeredness and put off when we fail dismally in our efforts to surrender 
uh, you know, to, to, to God's truth here, to, to give in and to, to run after this. So yes, Jesus is being held up here as our example, but he is never less than our savior. The example of Christ's humility that Paul gives us here can't shape us before it saves us. And the effect of the work of Jesus described here not only rescues us from the punishment of God that was rightfully ours, but also brings us into Christ and into relationship with each other. So what does it look like then? You know, we talk about the gospel and the way the gospel is all over scripture. What does it look like to believe the gospel in this passage? Believing the good news means trusting that Jesus has given you a heart transplant. That he, he's put within you a heart of humility that's alien to your sinful desires. And therefore, one that will sometimes be rejected by your sinful instincts. A heart that you can scarcely recognize except for its resemblance to him. To believe the good news will look like keeping your eyes on Jesus and beginning to trust and obey his instructions, even if they feel counterintuitive and unwise or unsafe to you. One of the ways that I've been trying to exercise, and this was handy during the pandemic when you're, you're doing a lot of things at home, um, and admittedly not as consistently over the last few months as I'd like, but it's jump rope workouts. For me, they are short enough to fit into a fuller day and physically demanding enough that I feel like I'm getting value out of the time invested. But you see, my challenge is I'm not the most coordinated person. You know, God gave me a lot of gifts and dancing is not one of them. My poor wife, who is a dancer. Just. You know, I, I'm a musician, so it's like all of my rhythm went into my hands. So it feels to me sometimes like I can only do one thing at a time. So learning jump rope has taken some time and some effort, and I, I'm, I'm still learning. I have a lot to learn. So I'm using this app, and, you know, it features these videos by these super fit-looking guys who make everything look easy. Uh, but they actually do a very good job of teaching. One of the things they say is that when you're jumping, you should not look down at your feet. Instead, you keep your head level and you kind of pick a point out there and you look at that point as you, as you try to focus and jump. For some skills, they even recommend closing your eyes so that you can be more aware of the rotation of the rope as it's going around. Now, I haven't searched around a lot to see, to kind of compare those instructions with other, with, with other guys who are teaching, but I've found that counsel to be really helpful. The point is it doesn't help to focus on your feet while trying to jump. In a similar way, it doesn't help to focus on yourself, on your efforts and your struggles while trying to learn humility. What you need to do is look and keep looking at Jesus. So, it shouldn't be surprising that Paul, as he calls us to Christ-like humility, points us to Christ himself without breaking step. As we prepare to look at verses 6 to 8, I need to help you to feel where we are right now. I've enjoyed visiting this building over the years because I look at the architecture of this building and I think it reflects so well the city that you're in. Over the centuries, Christians have put a lot of thought into how they build churches. Uh, when churches had resources back in the day, their architectural choices were consistently made to evoke a sense of awe and reverence when you walked into the building. 
You might have felt that if you walked into a particularly old church with stained glass windows and the light kind of streams through the windows. And it, it, it just pulls your vision up. It pulls your gaze up to the heavens, as it were. Now, if you could read ancient Greek, you'd recognize in these verses that we have stepped onto hallowed ground. From verse 6 through, from verse six through verse 11, the writing style here is elevated from the surrounding text. It reads like a poem or a hymn, and it represents arguably the highest Christology, the highest teaching about Jesus that we have in the New Testament. It dives down into the horrific depths of Jesus' humiliation and then soars to the heady heights of his heavenly exaltation. In verses 6 and 7, Paul poetically describes the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. Jesus, who is intrinsically equal to the Father, did not hold on to that equality in order to use it for his own advantage. So Paul is pointing out that Jesus refused to act in his own self-interest, but instead humbled himself. What we see then in the narratives of the incarnation that are often read at Christmas is the story of Jesus humbling himself. We see how the word of God became flesh. Through the supernatural work of the Spirit, a child was conceived in the womb of a poor Jewish girl who had never had sex. The word by whom the whole universe was created came as a helpless newborn in very humble circumstances. He was God, yet he was dependent on his mother for food and care. The one who created language had to learn how to speak. The verb translated emptied himself here has led some people to think that in his incarnation, Jesus shed elements of his divinity. The thinking goes that, well, you know, God never grows weary, but Jesus got tired. Therefore, you know, he, he couldn't have been all powerful. God knows all things, but Jesus had to learn many things as he grew and admitted to not knowing some things. So therefore, he could not have been all knowing. Now, as difficult a thing as it is to wrap our minds around the incarnation. This passage, properly understood, doesn't support that kind of thinking. You see, Paul explains what he means when he says Jesus emptied himself. We can see it in English, but it's seen much more vividly in the original language. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself by adding humanity to his divinity. This was subtraction by addition. I already explained that I'm not a car guy. But think of a spectacular new car, maybe that Tesla SUV. Think of, uh, think of how it looks, the presentation, the rims, the finish, uh, the upholstery, the dash. Now think of taking that car and just plastering it with mud, just covering the whole thing, just you know, obscuring all the windows. The brilliance of the finish and the style of the interior would be lost entirely. Subtraction by addition. In a similar way, the one who was spectacular beyond description, whose radiance was unbearably bright, emptied himself by becoming human. And the result was that when Jesus was born, and throughout the vast majority of his earthly life, he appeared ordinary. And worse than that, he took the lowest place, the place, of a slave. Jesus could have become human and uh, be born into a royal family. 
In fact, in Matthew's gospel, that's exactly where the, the Magi, who came looking for him after his birth, thought to look. In a palace in Jerusalem. But as the commentator G. Walter Hansen helpfully points out, the one who could have rightfully claimed the highest position in human history and justly received supreme honors deliberately sought the lowest position and submitted himself to extreme humiliation. So Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And as Paul points out in verse 8, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, the kind of execution the Romans would only inflict on those they saw as non-persons. It was humiliating and dehumanizing. Jesus' incarnation was ultimately about his death and humiliation at the cross. Here's something I want you to see. Being a disciple is not just about appreciating what Jesus did for you. It's not just about worshipful admiration of him. You see, you can appreciate and admire Jesus without any inclination to imitate him. I think most of you would be aware that Jamaican sprinters have been on top of the world consistently for a number of years. So whether it's Usain Bolt, who's now retired, or Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, who made this amazing comeback after having a child uh, to get back to the top of her game, or Elaine thompson Hero. We know that you can appreciate and admire them without any inclination to get out on the track and to train hard. Most of us Jamaicans are like that. We love them, but we're not going out there. There's no way. I'm not doing that to myself. But you see, when it comes to following Jesus, admiration without imitation is sub-Christian. We're called to think and behave in the ways he did. There's another sub-Christian idea that is conspicuous by its absence in this passage that's worth thinking about. A church is not built on reciprocity. What do I mean by that? In reciprocal relationships, we give with the understanding that others will give back to us in return. So if I take you to lunch, I expect that you're going to do the same for me sooner or later. If I forgive you for being inconsiderate, I expect forgiveness in return. If you inconvenience me, I expect that you should acknowledge that and be reasonably tolerant of me in my moments of weakness. In reciprocal relationships, I'm willing to condescend, but I'm not prepared to absorb a net loss or an ongoing loss. Reciprocal relationships are like a seesaw. Even if I must lower myself, it's not very far. And it won't be long before you must lower yourself and therefore lift me up. Or I'm going to stop playing this game. You ever seen kids on a seesaw where one just kind of sits on the ground and has the other up there, you know? It's that kind of thing. No, we're not playing like that, you know? But look at Jesus' example here. Do you see any hint of reciprocity? No. He goes down and down and down until there's no further to go. And he does so for us. That's what humility looks like. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humility often leads to all kinds of anxieties. But there's no need for that with reciprocity. With reciprocity, my sense of importance is not diminished any more than yours. With humility, I'm called to lay aside my sense of importance and consider you more important than me. 
This explains why the expectation of reciprocity makes marriage, for example, such a miserable experience. It wasn't designed to be a reciprocal relationship, but rather one where both spouses embrace ongoing humility without keeping score. I'll admit my struggle over these weeks of moving because there have been these days where I've just tried really hard to serve my wife and just put my back into the work and you just feel the sense of disappointment when she doesn't notice. It's just like, like I did all of that. I mean, how could you not notice? I was working hard all day. Come on. But the humility we're called to is not to perform for people to notice and to get credit. It's imitation of Jesus who served us when we weren't even aware of his service. Think about how this should shape our friendships in church. I recently read some advice from the Christian blogger, Tim Chalice. He says, acknowledge that in most friendships, one person will be the main pursuer and the main initiator. Don't feel sorry for yourself if you're that person. What I'd add is instead recognize it as an opportunity to humbly serve someone else. Jesus shows us in his example that to humble ourselves is not to lose importance. His humility does not diminish his deity. And for us, humility only becomes possible when we are secure in our identity in Christ. Now, much more briefly, we need to see the outcome of Jesus' humility. So look with me then at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses describe God's response to Jesus' obedience and humility. They describe a gracious and therefore free response. Yet at the same time, it says, therefore... In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus taught that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. No one has ever or will ever exemplify this more than Jesus did. And God, who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, exalted Jesus in his resurrection and seated him at his right hand and gave him a name that is above every other name. So what name is that? To see that, we need to look at Isaiah 45, verse 23. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The one speaking in that verse is the covenant Lord, Yahweh himself. In Philippians, Paul says that every knee in all creation will bow to Jesus. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' journey of humility led him through humiliation, but ended in exaltation to the highest place, seated beside God the Father, where he'll be rightfully worshipped as Lord. Paul ends with Jesus' exaltation because we can have Every expectation that we too, in ways that are different but similar to Jesus, will be exalted if we humble ourselves. That's the expectation we see Jesus point, to, point, point us towards in the Gospel of Mark. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If we humble ourselves, our journey, just like his, will end in honor and exaltation. 
Philippians 2, 1 to 11 points you to what must always be a priority for you as you continue your journey through different seasons as a local church. Unity as a church depends on conscious and collective pursuit of Christ-like humility. It must be conscious. Nobody can take this journey of humility on autopilot. It must be collective. All of us as Christians must embrace this humility if we are to please God and adorn the gospel. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. We celebrated his resurrection. And I think sometimes in our minds we stop there. He's alive again and we forget where he is now. He has been exalted to the highest place. Seated beside God the Father. Reigning in glory. A part of what it looks like to bow our knees to him now is to respond to the blessings of salvation by prioritizing the unity we have in Christ and pursuing the humility we see in Christ. Now, this is going to cost us and it's going to stretch us. Uh, I remember a situation where, uh, well, let me backtrack a little. I made a, 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 an unusual promise to our church as we were gathering our first members and just teaching them. I said to them, if I have not hurt you yet, don't worry, I will. But I said that because I'm human, uh, and, and in my fallenness, I'm going to sin against you. And a situation eventually came along where, in all good intentions, I had a very difficult conversation with one of our members, and she was offended by some things I said in that conversation. And I was offended by things she said in that conversation. But I felt like God was challenging me to acknowledge the ways in which I had sinned against her. And so... I spoke with her again. She didn't want to talk to me, but I was able to speak with her again. And I just said, hey, I really feel like these are some things in which I sinned against you. And I want to ask your forgiveness. And again, remember that reciprocity thing. I'm, I'm, in my heart, I'm kind of hoping she will acknowledge the things she did wrong in the conversation. There was no such thing happening. <laughs> but in the moment, I recognized the way God was calling me to humble myself before her and just confess, hey, yeah, when I said that, that wasn't helpful, it wasn't loving. Uh, and God has graciously restored our relationship over time. Humility is going to cost us and it's going to stretch us. But what we're going to gain along the way and without a doubt, what we'll gain in the end will far surpass all that we will give up. So let's lift our eyes and look to Jesus. He's our example of humility and the one who empowers us to walk in a manner that's worthy of bearing his name. Let's pray. Jesus, what a joy it is to lift up our prayers to one who is exalted. To lift up prayer through you to your father. Father, we thank you for bringing us near to you. Through the sacrifice of your son. Jesus, again, we behold your humility this morning. We look at you as the one who is in very nature God. But the one who condescended and became human. And became the servant of all. The one who, uh, after his death on a cross, a humiliating death. Whom the father raised from the dead. And highly exalted him. Giving him the name above every name. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord. We worship you and we adore you. And our desire is not just to do that with our words, but to do that in how we live our lives. So I pray, uh, Lord, that uh, by the work of your spirit, you would reinforce this call to humility in our hearts. 
That when we see it in front of us, when we see the opportunities, and when we feel the cost, we would remember the one who paid the highest cost for us. The one whom we adore. The one whom we're called to imitate. I pray that this church would be shaped by this call to humility. That there wouldn't be battles all over the place because of pride and desire for position and desire for importance. But that those would become opportunities for people to humble themselves. So Lord, cause that genuine love and unity would grow in Lakeview. Even as they emerge from this pandemic, as we, we try to get back to life together and we're, we're unaccustomed to it. May that even create room for growth and humility. Help the leaders, Lord, to continue to humble themselves and to serve. Uh, and for them to be examples of Jesus for others, to see what it looks like in the flesh to pursue this humility. I commit this church to your grace, recognizing that, Jesus, you are building this church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do so for the glory of your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, you, you, you can pull up a chair. Morgan, you can go sit down. <laughs> Uh, Joel, thank you, and and you know to think how we were served this morning is how folks in Jamaica get served on a regular basis. To hear liberating words, Jesus came as a revolutionary, and he brought ideas that were upside down in this world, and he knew that we needed to be restored to the Father for us to ever live in those ideas, and to hear non-reciprocal relationships, to hear that what God has set among us in every setting that you and I are relating to one another in our marriages, in our homes, in our friendships, in our church, Jesus was imparting to us these non-reciprocal relationships. You know, I appreciate you venturing into the social media world. He's a novice. He doesn't even know how to turn his device on very well. But what's modeled for us in so many settings of our world is reciprocal relationships. I'm going to do for you based on how you do for me. That's not what the gospel models for us. And it's not the life that gets imparted to us. So I'm, I'm so grateful, Joel, for the help to just get reminded and refreshed and to see through a different lens, to see opportunities for life to be given away in a non-reciprocating expectation and what that would do just to revolutionize the way in which we walk together in the relational settings of our lives. But that's, that's what the gospel brings to us. It brings this liberation from bad ideas. But your church needs to be a gospel-centered church, a Bible-exalting church for that to happen. And bro, I'm just so grateful that that's what you guys are raising up there in Jamaica so that folks can hear truth that liberates them and brings them into the pleasure of God. So our joy to support you in what God is doing there through your lives, through your family, through all the families that are there, part of the church. Uh, but it, it takes support for that to happen, right? And, and, There'll be years from now, at one point, we were a small church that God enlarged over the years. Uh, at some point, that'll be their story. And there'll be works taking place throughout Jamaica, we trust, that come out of this setting. Uh, right now, 
there's a small number, and they're part of Sovereign Grace Churches, but there's a small number of churches who are partnered with them in a vital way, and we happen to be one of those churches. And so your generosity has made an enormous impact on getting them through these first three years. Uh, but I know we've got a lot of new folks here. You, you weren't a part of what was happening when the church was being planted uh, back a few years ago. And you have an opportunity this morning to, to partner. And I just, I just had a strange sense, right? I'm, everyone, hold on to your card here this morning because I want you to write something on it in just a moment. But I had a weird just kind of sense. The word investment just kept coming to me praying last night for uh, Joel and, and for the church. And again, this morning, the word investment, investment. And, and then the, the word young and old came to me. And so I know if you're a young person, you think about investments very differently than if you're an old person. Right? If you're an older person, investments have become something now that you've been making throughout your life that now you are reaping something from them. And maybe you're, as you're getting older, you're still, you're still investing in the future that your retirement is going to bring to you. And so you're very aware that investments mean something in the future. Can I just say that in the kingdom of God, investments mean something in the future. They mean something to the future of people's eternity, but they mean something to the future of what you are looking to as well as you invest in life. So I find it a strange sense. Maybe some of you are thinking, hey, I don't, I don't quite know financially how I would participate. Uh, let me just ask you to consider something. What if you interrupted your investments in other places to consider investing here? Maybe you've got an auto draft that every month comes out of your account and goes into a 401k or it goes into some kind of thing that, that is an investment. And listen, we need those investments. I'm not saying that's not a bad, that's, that's a good thing. But this is an investment. What if you, what if you interrupted your 401k draft? You say, hey, you know, for the next few months, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna create an ability for me to just support what God's doing in Jamaica through Joel and the, the body that's there. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put that into that and just let the Lord lead you. Maybe it's just for the next few months. Maybe you're a young person here and and you don't do routine investments, right? I get that. A lot of new stuff happening in a young person's life. Would you consider, young person, would you consider just figuring out, hey, an amount of money you can live with that automatically comes out of your account every month? You probably have been approached by your employer about doing that so that you'll have some retirement funds later on. Could you consider doing that just for the sake of partnering with the gospel going forth in people's lives? Listen, when I, when I sit with Joel and I listen to him tell me about people's lives who have been wrecked, people who have come out of childhoods full of shame and broken families that that created environments that people struggle with. And now they're trying to do life, but, but they just don't have any moral guidance and they don't have any spiritual insight in order to do life. And they show up by God's grace in this church. And these people love on people. And next thing you know, they're having these conversations in real categories of people's lives that have been full of pain and struggle but they're hearing, kind of like what we heard this morning, they're hearing these revolutionary insights that are changing their lives. So listen, when we partner with a church that's gospel-centered and promoting the truth of God's word, we're, we're turning loose God's word with power on people's lives. That's an investment. It's an investment that may not be, in your thinking, reciprocated back, right? This is going to affect people's lives in Jamaica. You may never even see these people. You may not. 
You may get to tell a story, hear a story that Joel tells when he comes to visit. But isn't this the nature of what God has given us? Non-reciprocating relationships. The ability to invest in something that maybe, maybe that's not coming back to me. Maybe that's not going to like some. I, I liked you, Joel. Make sure you like me, okay? Uh, maybe this is just us laying our lives down like Jesus. And hey, if we don't ever hear anything back, we know that the kingdom of God has been invested in and lives are being affected for all eternity. So I'm going to pray for us. I hope all of you, if you don't have something to write with before you walk out of here, whatever God puts in your heart, if you grab a pen back there, I know the guys in the back booth back there, there's some pens and stuff back there. Um, but write something down here. There's a couple of ways you can support the ministry there. Uh, we've broken that out for reasons that I won't go into the details of explaining, just for the way in which income comes into churches and individuals in Jamaica. It's different than it is here. So uh, we're probably leaning more into supporting Joel at this moment uh, than, than running things through the church. So there's an account we'll be putting money into to support Joel into the months that are coming, and he will draw salary from that to support him and his family over the coming months. Again, if, you, if you've got some funds, you can say, hey, God's blessed us. We're going to be able to give right now. Great. Those, those funds will go immediately into his account and he'll be able to draw down from that month to month to support the work of what he's doing in his family there. If you, if you are more able to give over a monthly uh, gift, then those funds as you give to the church here, we will transfer those funds into his account uh, as well. But let's pray together and then just let the Lord lead you in, in that offering. We're going to pray about one more thing before we're done today. Lord, thank you for words of life. Lord, thank you for transferring those words of life into our lives, even as we heard this morning and listened. Lord, thank you for an awareness that you are renewing minds and setting people free and, and giving them hope in this world, even in all the brokenness of their lives. You have invaded with light, releasing them from the powers of darkness. And God, thank you that we get to partner with that and to be a part of you doing that in lives and in places that you see, Lord, every day you see these lives. And so, Father, thank you for men and women who have answered the call, who are empowered by your spirit, who love your word, and are transferring it effectively into other people's lives. And so, Lord, help us to help them this morning. Lord, help each of our households and our individuals who can give, Lord, and lead us as we give this morning to bless these guys, to bless the work that they're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to pray for one more thing before we close being together. Uh, this week, uh, we're, we're gathering as a, a, a region, our churches. I think we've got a, a map of what our, our region of churches is. that includes the, the church in Jamaica and the, the church also in the Bahamas. Uh, but this is the southeast region of Sovereign Grace Churches. And... Uh, to the left there, that box has got the different church names in each of those locations that you see and the, the elders uh, that serve to pastor and lead those churches. And uh, once a year, we've actually been disrupted because of the pandemic, not being able to gather the last two years. But, but we gather for a few days together just to strengthen one another, to build support and care for each other, to strategize together, to listen to what God is doing in different churches 
to help with areas maybe we're struggling some in some areas to gain some perspective and some insight from other pastors who are eagerly serving the kingdom of God. So that's going to take place this Tuesday through this Thursday uh, in Orlando as folks are coming from all over the region uh, to be together. I just ask you to stand up with me and, and let's pray for our time as we are together this week and um, just to see God do some things in our midst that that we want in our own church, but we want that for other churches as well who are are walking with like-minded intentions in sovereign grace with us. Father, we are so grateful for the ways in which your kingdom has come to us. Lord, we we were scattered individuals when your grace ran us down, insistent on overcoming all of our resistance, all of our self-destruction, all of our self-absorption, you came to us and you found us. Then, Lord, you put a mission in our hearts. And, Lord, you were loud about that mission. You made disciples, Lord, yes, for the sake of rescuing them out of the calamity of their own lives. But then you gave them a mission to be on. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And you made a promise that you would be with us even to the end. So, Father, we are so grateful to be part of that mission. And, Lord, these are unique times for that mission. Lord, most of us cannot remember a time when things have changed so much in our world. So many ideas, so many convictions, so many beliefs, so many challenges. Lord, there is a darkness in our day that seems different than it was just a decade ago. Lord, there's an opposition in our world. So, Lord, in these moments, Father, we need effective gospel ministry like we've never seen before. And yet, Lord, there are moments where that is more difficult and more opposed and seemingly less fruitful even than what we've encountered before. So, Father, gathering this week are uh, pastors who love their churches, who love their people, Lord, who have walked through these last few years and even this last decade, Lord, and have seen the challenges of raising up faithful churches that effectively minister to the needs of your people. So, Father, as we gather this week, Lord, we pray that you would gather with us We pray for your presence to be pronounced among us. God, we pray for the manifestations of your spirit and your gifts in our midst. Lord, we pray for words of wisdom that would be with us, that would give us insights into the coming days that we simply wouldn't have if you didn't impart them to us. God, we pray for refreshing. Lord, this has been an exhausting season for many who lead in churches at all kinds of levels. Lord, we are walking by faith. We we believe and trust in your promises. But Lord, these days have been challenging and exhausting for many. God, would you bring times of refreshing, I love the way your word describes times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. Lord, be with us. Lord, stir strength in our relationships with one another. Lord, would you help us to build more effectively together? Lord, would you help our friendships to flourish Lord, would you help our care for one another to find strength in this time and in these days ahead? 
So God, thank you for partnership, Lord. Thank you for friends, Lord. Thank you for folks who we have had the privilege of walking with for years. Lord, thank you for the way that we get to partner with other locations and other churches and see the gospel message flourish and your purpose come to pass. God, we thank you for Joel being here with us. Lord, we thank you for uh, his serving, his friendship, the encouragement we receive, God, by listening to what you're doing in and through his life. Lord, bless him and Sam and their family. Uh, Lord, bless Sean and Sheldon and their families as they serve effectively in Jamaica. Lord, may we have the joy of seeing the fruit that comes from their labor and what you've allowed us to humbly sow seed into that day of harvest. God, we're grateful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Bless you guys who are watching. We love you. We miss you. Hope to see you soon. And we'll see you guys next week.